You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg Cott. i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i review some big spring releases We'll dive into the new albums from MGMT, LCD Sound System, and more. And then it'll be my turn to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, that's one of your favorite bands, Cheap Trick, from Rockford, Illinois, from their first album, Taxman, Mr. Thief. Interesting story on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times today. Illinois, like many states across the country right now, is uh, dealing with a horrible budget deficit. In the case of our home state, $13 billion in the red. How do they want to solve this? The legislature down in Springfield is talking about instituting a new tax on digital downloads of music and movies. You know, some states across the country made the transition. You used to go to a record store or a video store and buy a piece of physical product. You'd be paying state sales tax. As sales for those media moved more and more onto the web, some states were very aggressive about having download taxes. Uh, There's 19, apparently. Neither you nor I knew this. But since 2007, states including Indiana, Wisconsin, New Jersey, Nebraska, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Washington have all imposed taxes. Downloading an album on iTunes, you're paying the tax man. The uh, Illinois solution apparently would generate up to $10 million in revenues. Seems like a drop in the bucket if you're looking at $13 billion in the red. But the Democrats in Illinois want to push this through. The Republicans, being pretty much universally against taxes, are saying, oh, no, you don't. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And if other states follow suit and begin taxing music lovers and, and people who are downloading films. Band on the run from Paul McCartney and Wings back in the 70s, and uh, McCartney and Wings are a band on the run. Their entire back catalog of 
albums is being moved to a new label. McCartney just made that announcement a few days ago. He's basically taking his entire post-Beatles output and taking it away from EMI, where it has been housed for the last few decades, and bringing it to Concord Music, with whom he put out a solo record a few years ago through the uh, Starbucks coffee chain. Huge development for the music industry, because at the height of its powers, when it was a $15 billion-a-year industry, Jim, they were making a lot of that dough off selling back catalog, basically taking the back catalog of artists like Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, repackaging it, and making buku bucks off of 16 17 18 $19 CDs. To say nothing of the box sets. Yeah, basically no overhead, no recording costs. I mean, just reissue this product. Well, now that the rights to this back catalog is starting to revert to the artist, they have a decision to make. Do we keep it with these big four corporations that dominated the music industry for decades, the EMIs, the Warners, the Sonys, the Universals of the world, Or do we take it independent? And increasingly, we're seeing these artists decide, hey, these corporations really don't know what they're doing anymore in this new digital era. Let's go with some of these newer companies and see what they can do. So McCartney's basically saying all physical product, all digital product related to his post-Beatles output is now going to be overseen by this Concord music chain. And that means bad news for the 20th century record industry if this trend continues. Well, you know, Greg, Band on the Run or Ram are one thing, but anybody who is downloading Give My Regards to Broad Street, <laughs> Sir Paul ought to be paying them, okay? I never thought that you would crab me, undermine me, and backstab me, but I can see clearly now the rain is gone, the pain is gone, but what you did was still wrong. There was a few times I needed your support, but you tried to play me like an indoor sport, like racquetball, tennis. Whatever. All I know is that you attempted to be clever. Nevertheless, cleverness can't impress. Cause now you've been exposed like a person undressed. And I can see through you. Cause I'm the guru. And what you're gonna do when I start to step to you. Cause when I pay you back, I'll be hurting you. And this ain't no threat, so take it personal. That is a song called Take It Personal from the hip-hop duo Gangstar. The uh, MC on that track, known as Guru, an acronym for Gifted Unlimited Rhymes Universal, died in the last few days at the age of 43 or the age of 47, depending on what source you choose to cite. Guru, born Keith Illum in uh, Boston in the 60s, founded Gangstar in New York City in 1983. He was originally from the Boston area, went to school in Atlanta, came to New York in 83 when it was the epicenter of hip-hop, and formed a partnership with DJ Premier. They went on to become one of the most groundbreaking duos in hip-hop during the golden age of rap music, at a time when major groups like Public Enemy, Run DMC, The Beastie Boys, A Tribe Called Quest, Della Soul were all breaking, each one of these groups with an original sound. Guru and Gangstar distinguished themselves by fusing jazz rhythms and voicings with the hip-hop lexicon and created a fresh sound that is influential to this day. The idea of bringing in sort of those jazz textures was was a relatively new one at the time, and combined with Guru's fluidity as a vocalist, allowed them to stand out. They didn't sell a lot of records. They didn't go gold until the late 90s, but at the same time, hugely influential. Just as important was his work with Jazzmatazz, sort of a side project in which Guru collaborated with jazz musicians like Ramsey Lewis, Branford Marsalis, Courtney Pine, Donald Byrd and solidified that relationship between jazz and hip-hop. A lot of people saying, what does jazz have to do with hip-hop? 
to Guru and Gangstar, it was one of the genres of music that allowed hip-hop to be created, just as important as, as funk and R&B was jazz in their eyes. We're going to play a track that perhaps gave Gangstar its biggest mainstream attention. It came from a Spike Lee movie called Mo Betta Blues, in which Gangstar collaborated with the jazz saxophonist Branford Marsalis on a track called Jazz Music. In tribute to Guru, who died last week, here's Jazz Music on Sound Opinions. The music started in the hearts of drums from another land Played for everyone, my sons of the motherland Sending out a message of peace to everybody And came across the oceans and chains and shame He's in the pain And it was without name Until some men in New Orleans on Rampart Street Put out the sounds and then they gave it a beat I'm talking about Jelly Roll, King and Satch I'm talking about the music that had no match Yes, the music And it was born down there, we're gonna use it so make the horn sound clear. It's jazz music. Jazz music. Music. Yo, the music that pops and other cats made, it stayed. Because people love when they played to the north. It took a riverboat shuffle to the big cities. With lots of hustle and bustle to Chicago and to the Apple II. This was the scene that our forefathers knew. Go get your crew. I know they'll get into the jazz music. Jazz music. Called jazz had the razzmatazz, it had the flavor and a lot of pizzazz. The big band beat was very neat and unique. The swing was king, it made you tap your feet. There was Benny and Duke, and of course the Count Basie. The melody was smooth and yes, very tasty. There was Hawk, the Prez, and Lady Day, and Dizzy Bird and Miles. They were all playing. They brought it to the people of the foreign lands. Back across the oceans and the desert sands Where it echoes in the distant sounds of drums And it rises with the sun on days begun This is the music that we give tribute to They gave it to us, that's why we give it to you The jazz music Jazz music with Gangstar and Branford Marsalis From the Spike Lee movie Mo Betta Blues on Sound Opinions track called Drunk Girls from the new LCD sound system record, This Is Happening. Jim, we're going to be diving into some uh, spring record releases in the next segment of the show, and this is a big one. The third album from LCD Sound System, the pet project of James Murphy, who originally came to fame in New York City in the early part of this decade as the co-founder 
of a key label called DFA that put out singles by groups like The Rapture, The Juan McLean, and Black Dice, basically was a key component of that merger of dance music and punk rock that became a big sound in New York and spread throughout the world in the last 10 years. LCD Sound System put out its first self-titled record in 2005, including a compilation of singles. Murphy, again, creating a sound that became hugely popular, sort of poking fun at himself at the same time, creating these heavy dance rhythms, combining with a punk rock aesthetic, came out with Sound of Silver in 2007, another acclaimed record. And this, the third LCD Sound System record, this is happening. He claims it may be the last one he puts out. We'll see what it's all about in a minute, but uh, let's play a track from it first. It's called All I Want from LCD Sound Systems. This is happening on Sound Opinions. That's All I Want by LCD Sound System from album number three, This Is Happening. Great stuff, Greg. That song in particular has got that driving noy motorique beat. You have to love when James Murphy locks into that groove. Big student of rock history. Noy and Kraftwerk in the 70s and when David Bowie and Brian Eno went to uh, Berlin and made what's called the Berlin Trilogy of Albums. A lot of references to that throughout the LCD catalog. I think, though, and, and, and our producer Robin Lynn nailed this for me, 
He's really trying to do Roxy music here. He's working on his vocals. You know, it's been this kind of monotone chant that mm. he's championed through the first two albums. That, you know, when he's singing uh, Daft Punk is playing in my house, he's just kind of chanting over the groove. And here he's kind of trying to sing like Brian Ferry doesn't quite have it, and it isn't beginning to end successful. Drunk Girls, which we bumped in with, is kind of an annoying song, but there are some <laughs> high points on this on this album. It's the least favorite of the three LCD Sound System albums for me, and yet even slightly subpar LCD is better than no LCD, so I will say buy it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, but I don't think it's a bad thing that Murphy is winding this project down. I think whatever he does next will be different and, and even more exciting. I agree with you that that is the least exciting of the three LCD sound system records. I mean, he set the bar pretty high. I think with Sound of Silver especially, there was an emotional context to that dance music that really led me to believe that he was one of the major artists of the last decade. On this record, it is just lousy with Bowie references. I mean, yeah. there are direct cops. I mean, that track that we played, I mean, that is lifting the guitar tone from Heroes almost, almost yeah. wholesale. Well, you hear uh, the Roxy music, though, too, right? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the record cover, you know, he's got the tie on and, you know, kind of a Brian Ferryish rakish, you know, look. Uh, <laughs> Except he looks like an auto mechanic yeah, from New Jersey. Yeah, you know, with the stubble on the face and everything. Yes, exactly. You can't quite pull off that Roxy thing completely. But I do like this record. I, I think it works as sort of a song cycle about a long night out. And the, and the key for me was that last track, where he's kind of uh, juxtaposing these ideas of home and going out for an, an, an evening on the town and saying, you know, really, it's all about this moment. I think the key lines for me, so grab your things and stumble into the night so we can shut the door and shut the door on terrible times. Just do it right. That's what this record is all about. It's just a pleasure cruise, looking for living the moment and providing a soundtrack for that night out. It makes no great statement. He realizes pop music has a certain role to play, and if it gets too far outside of that, too pretentious, it loses some of its appeal. This is an album of body music. It's all about those rhythms, and everything from the cowbells to the tambourines to the wood blocks, it's about those rhythms, and it's about those textures. And I think it's a great dance record. I'll say buy it. Well, I saw you shaking your booty, so it's two buy it's for LCD Sound Systems. This is happening. Greg and I will be back with more big spring record reviews, including the latest from synth-pop duo MGMT and the reunion effort from Courtney Love and Hole. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and we are having fun reviewing some of the biggest spring record releases, including that one. That is uh, Rocky Erickson, backed by Ockerville River, on the long-awaited new Rocky Erickson album, True Love, Cast Out All Evil. Greg, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say not only is this album long-awaited, most people never thought it would happen. Yeah. Rocky Erickson is a legend of American music. What Sid Barrett was to Pink Floyd in the UK, Rocky was to kind of American music. As the leader of the 13th Floor Elevators in the 60s, pioneering garage psychedelic rock band, as a solo artist in the 70s, and as a very troubled man dealing with mental illness while being in the spotlight. Rocky was confined at one point to Rusk State Mental Hospital in Austin and did some writing there, but came out was never the same. The onset of schizophrenia in his early 20s, coupled with chemical abuse, taking a lot of psychedelic drugs, basically had him living in squalor, alone in a cluttered house, living on Social Security. People in the Austin community, one of the uh, most supportive in the world, would come in and kind of try to take care of Rocky for years. But it seemed as if he was going downhill and was never going to make music again. Finally, his brother nursed him back to health. An incredible story. He's back. He's healthy. He's on top of the world singing his old songs. But could he write new ones? Went into the studio with Will Sheff, the leader of that alt country kind of roots rock Texas band, Ockerville River, and has produced, at long last, this new album, True Love Cast Out All Evil. As we do with these record reviews, we're going to play a song, come back, give our thoughts, and grade it on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is Please Judge, typical of many songs on this album, dealing with the court system and people trying to lock Rocky up. Here it is, Rocky Erickson on Sound Opinions. Please judge Don't send her, keep that boy away In society I wish you'd let him stay Please don't give him time Please don't him confine Please don't say hey, hey. Send her, keep that boy away. Please judge. Give freedom to this child. It sure would make him smile. All that may do my rhyme Is denied that there is crime Don't send her, keep that boy away I've been watching him for days And most of the time He prays That the crooked are always straight And to not think of a pain again You would allow me, I will say Please judge Please don't give him time Please don't him confine Please don't say 
send to keep Dad boy. That's Please Judge from Rocky Erickson, the new studio record, True Love, Cast Out All Evil. As you said, Jim, somewhat of a miracle that this record is even out there. Uh, it's been 12 years since he put out anything new from the studio. And a really empathetic effort by Will Sheff and Ockerville River as his backing band on this record. They basically worked with about 60 songs that span Erickson's career, dating back to his stay at that Rusk Mental Institute in Texas, and winnowed them down to about 12. Five of the songs from that period when he was at the mental hospital. You look back on Rocky's solo work especially, and it is just populated with these horrific visions, demons dancing throughout the music, and he's confronting them. These were the demons that he had in his own mind at the time. I mean, he was literally seeing visions of evil in his life and working them out through his music. On this record, the tone is much more, I'm a better person now. I'm in a better state mentally. I still remember those demons, and I'm trying to deal with them again. But now he's sort of seeing the white light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a plea for mercy, for redemption, for going home, for stability in his life. And it's a reflective record as opposed to an angry, howling record. I think a lot of people might have wanted or expected some more of that acid rock from Rocky. If you go see him perform live, you will see that howling madman reemerge every once in a while. On this record, the tone is much more low-key, much more subtle, but there are still those visions dancing around. It's a beautiful record. His voice is still very much intact. He can go from those really fragile high notes to those angry growls. It almost feels like he's possessed. If you know anything about his backstory, I, I can't see not being moved by the music on this record, a record that, as you said, I never thought would be made. I give it a buy it. Greg, I'll give it a buy it as well, although I have to say I've never been a fan of Will Sheff and Ockerville River. To me, they're pretty boring, and uh, I'm a little disappointed. When we had interviewed Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top on the radio show, he was planning to go in and produce a record with Rocky Erickson. Gibbons was a contemporary of the teenage Rocky. That would have been something, I think, because I think Billy could have gotten both the mellow Rocky and the fierce, fiery Rocky. Mm -hmm. Some of these songs to Rocky obsessives like me have been around for two decades or more. It's not a lot of new material, but you know, you need this in your collection. I would say one caution on my buy it. If this is the only Rocky Erickson record you're going to go out and buy, there are are several greatest hits collections and Mm. and career spanning retrospectives. And you need to start with one of those first. Bastard Samurai from uh, High on Fire with their fifth studio record, Snakes for the Divine. You can hear a little bit of the guitar player's old band in that track that we just played. Matt Pike, the guitar player in High on Fire, began life in the heavy metal world with a band called Sleep in the 1990s. Legendary stoner rock band, one of the pioneers of that sound, that sort of druggy, heavy guitar-based metal music that was rooted in, in early 70s metal. The key moment in Sleep's career was a record called Jerusalem that came out 
after the band broke up. It is legend among metalheads. May I just insert here? Yes. Jerusalem changed your life and my <laughs> life for the better. Just the mere mention, and we are grinning like fools. Indeed. So what does Matt Pike do for an encore? He uh, forms a band called High on Fire with drummer Des Kenzel, who's been at his side since the beginning. They released five studio records, this being the fifth, worked with some really fine producers, Steve Albini, Jack Andino. Now they're back for Snakes for the Divine. Let's play a track from it first before we review it. It's called Fire, Blood, and Plague from High on Fire on Sound Opinions. Good day when we get to play High on Fire on Sound Opinions. That is a song called Fire, Blood, and Plague from the band's fifth album, the new one, Snakes for the Divine. Okay, those words I just spoke. Yes, there is some silliness here. The Dark Lord rides in force tonight. Only time will tell us why we are in the world of Tolkien and Dungeons and Dragons and so on. Doesn't matter. It's not about the words, my friends. It is about the pummeling force of this band. And Pike is quite simply one of the most inventive and melodic but heavy guitarists in heavy music for the last two decades. To be side-by-side with Des Kensel, who is one of the most nimble drummers. I mean, you have to go back to, like, old Deep Purple to find that kind of mixture of jazz and heavy ferocity. Mm, yeah. This guy is incredible. Here they have a new producer, this guy, Greg Feidelman, who uh, ha- worked a lot with Rick Rubin and uh, helmed uh, Slayer's 2009 album, World Painted Blood. The guy's considered kind of slick in the heavy metal hard rock world by previous High on Fire standards. I mean, this was an underground band, like you said, Steve Albini, Jack and Dino. It was dirty, it was garagey. I don't think by slicking things up a little bit, Mm. you know, getting rid of a little bit of the mud, that High on Fire has lost a bit of power. This is still, the only word for it is pummeling. This is a pummeling album, and it is a buy-it record. 
I'm with you 100%, Jim, and I'm with you about Des Kenzel. I think his drums sound better than ever. The drum sound on this record is just awesome. I, I love it for that reason alone. I talked about Sleep earlier, and Sleep was about that sludge, about that heaviness. It's sort of like a molten lava kind of flow that yes. they had. And there are a few moments on this record where they kind of reference that, but mostly it's about the rush. It's about that speed and the fact that Pike, who sounds like three guitar players at once, I don't know quite how he's doing. Maybe maybe he is overdubbing. I've seen him live, though, where he's basically playing lead and rhythm at the same time. He's and layering the, harmonic overtones. Amazingly dexterous guitar player. I think this is one of their best records. I didn't think it was possible after a decade to make a better record than their debut. Well, they've just done it. Snakes for the Divine, buy it record all the way. Mild apprehension Blank dreams of becoming fun Distort the odds of a turnaround Gut screams out next to none That is a song called Flash Delirium from the Brooklyn duo MGMC on their brand new album, Congratulations, here on Sound Opinions with our record review show. Greg, uh, this band, formerly called Management, now simply MGMT, first came together in the early 2000s when Ben Goldwasser and Andrew Von Weingarten were students, art students, at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. As chance would have it, you and I just spoke at Wesleyan University, (laughs) where we were informed by the aspiring young rock critics who came out to see us, all, all three of them, that there is now a sign in the newspaper office, MGMT, you are dead to us. Why is that? I think it was with that breakthrough album in 2008, album number one, Oracular Spectacular. It was so successful, suddenly this band is touring with Radiohead. They are doing fashion shoots for Vogue. They are dating models, right? They're living the rock star high life. Hmm. Basically, uh, two young Brooklyn geeks who are thinking they're Lady Gaga or something, right? That's irrelevant to us here on Sound Opinions. What we care about is the music. Early on, MGMT was a mix of that super aggressive synth rock that you heard from Suicide just post-punk in New York and the more modern Brooklyn rock sounds from bands like The Rapture or LCD Sound System, some of which, uh, and it's a ubiquitous sound, some of these bands do it great and some of them do it kind of cookie cutter. Where does MGMT fall on album number two? We're going to give our opinions after we play this song. It is called... Brian Eno, which is a tribute to one of my favorite forces in rock history. I'll hold my thoughts till afterwards, but here's MGMT on Sound Opinions.
Brian Eno from MGMT, their new record, Congratulations. Uh, they're paying homage to uh, Jim's personal hero, and they're mystified by him. Brian is giving them all sorts of advice in that song, none of which they can understand. Yeah, and I think that's it's, part of the problem. It, it's a good metaphor for this record, because I think early on they were typecast as this sardonic electro-pop band with those big hits, Kids, Time to Pretend. People had an image of them as kind of these happy-go-lucky, cheerful guys who were tweaked out on ecstasy and making these kind of goofy dance pop songs. Things have turned dark on Congratulations. Part of it may be the lifestyle that they're immersed in, as you said, Jim. They have taken a much darker, queasier look at this world. There's still a gleam in their eye, but uh, instead of ecstasy, now I think the acid has kicked in. And it's, uh, it's a different drug now, and it's a different vibe on this record altogether. Key decision, they're working with Pete Kembler of the band Spaceman 3, otherwise known as Sonic Boom. Mm-hmm. And he has broadened the sound, given it a much deeper, darker dimension, a depth to the music that the first record didn't have. Personally, I thought of these guys as uh, lightweights on Oracular Spectacular. Yeah. Uh, I think this, this record is a lot deeper and darker and way more interesting. It doesn't have the hits that the first couple of records had, but I think it works as an album much better. And I'm going to give it a buy it. Well, I'm surprised to hear you say that, Greg. I mean, you know, look, you just run down the names. The last record was produced by Dave Fridman, who works with the Flaming Lips. Right. This one's got Sonic Boom of Spaceman 3. Oh, my God, one of my all-time heroes. And they're singing an homage to Brian Eno. Yeah. Why don't I like this record? Part of it is the vocal style. It reminds me of the 3 o'clock. Do you remember? <laughs> On the Paisley Underground scene of the mid-'80s yeah, uh, yeah. from California. You had right. great bands like the Bangles and the Dream Syndicate. Uh-huh. Then you had the 3 o'clock, and Michael Quercio was like the lightweight guy who later gets taken under the wing of Prince and just annoyed the heck out of me. It was so flimsy and precious and dainty, kind of hearkening back to the most annoying songs about flowers and daisies and such from the early British psychedelic scene. You know, it's just guys sitting around reading Oscar Wilde, sipping tea and tripping <laughs> like wildebeests, and they have nothing interesting to say. I wish I could get more behind this record. I, I'll give you... You're, you're saying they don't have anything interesting to say? Yeah. this record? I, I yeah. Think, I think Even about Brian I, Eno. How do you have nothing interesting I, I, to say I, about Brian I Eno? I think that's where you're wrong. I think they do have something interesting to say, and they're, they're, they're talking about how strange this new world and this new popularity is that they found themselves in. They they never thought they belonged in this world, and now here they are. They don't belong in this world. They're thoroughly mediocre. There's a few. <laughs> I, I, I like this album a little more than I like the last album, which would have been a trash it, but the best I can do here is a burn it. You have to hear it, because all the hipsters are going to have an opinion pro or con anyway. Burn it from me. Buy it from you. But if you, the listener at home, want to be the critic and give us your review, leave a message for us. We might play it on the air. 888-859-1800 is the number. Or talk to us on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a final review of the new album from Hole, as well as my Desert Island jukebox pick.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Hole with their first album in a decade called Nobody's Daughter, a track called Pacific Coast Highway. Hole, of course, the uh, nom de rock of Courtney Love. Hole is her first band, the one she started in the late 80s. It's gone through, Jim, by my count, this is the ninth different lineup for Hole. Uh, they put out four albums, nine different lineups. Draw, yeah. Do your own math on that one. Courtney Love, of course, the widow of Kurt Cobain, arguably the, the most famous rock widow ever outside of maybe Yoko Ono. And possibly one of the greatest train wrecks in rock history outside of Sid Vicious. Very true. The last decade has not been kind to Courtney Love. She's been in the news more for her drug issues and her custody battles over her daughter, Frances Bean, than she is for her music. In that time, as I said, no whole record since 1999, one solo record, which, as you aptly described it, was a train wreck. America's Sweetheart came out in 2004. She herself has basically (laughs) said that record was trash. That's a bad record. This record started out uh, while she was in rehab. took about four or five years for this record to finally be released, but here it is. Nobody's Daughter from Hole. Let's play a track from it before we give it a review. It's called Samantha on Sound Opinions. That is Samantha from the new piece of product being delivered by Courtney Love under the guise of Hole here on Sound Opinions. Greg, second in the great, long-running Jim DeRogatis, Greg Cott debates between you and me, only to Meatloaf versus Bruce Springsteen, (laughs) are the merits, demerits, was Courtney Love 
ever a great artist argument. I would argue, you know, at that period where she was collaborating artistically and romantically with Kurt Cobain, he quite obviously, in retrospect, helped her hone her songcraft in terms of really great melodies. She, in turn, underrated, helped him hone his lyrical style. She was a great lyricist once. Came together on Live Through This. That is one of the best albums of the 90s. What happened to Courtney the lyricist here? I don't know. It's hackneyed, it's tired, it's cliched. It starts with the album cover. You know, you got Marie Antoinette on one side and, and an Elizabethan woman on the other. This suggestion that she's a strong woman wrapped up in some great historical drama, okay. done wrong, and possibly about to lose her head, right? Courtney, we've heard this before. It's hard to even tell what she's angry about. There's very little she's sharing that feels honest here. Going into the studio with Billy Corgan, her on-again, off-again, off-again, on-again boyfriend, predated Kirk Cobain of the Smashing Pumpkins, and Linda Perry. You know, remember Four Don Blondes? Yeah, she sure. was the leader of that band. Yeah. She is now kind of the slightly lower-rent Cara Dioguardi, the Hollywood hack songstress for hire. No good can come from Courtney Love collaborating with a woman like that. There is a measured professionalism, a balance, kind of slickness to this album that has nothing to do with what I ever loved from Hole in the Past. Buy it, burn it, trade This is trash at record. This is such a bad record. Well, you know, I've never been on the on the uh, train that Courtney Love was a great artist. I think she was at one time a, a fascinating rock star. But as an artist, I, I don't go there. When I, saw her, <laughs> when I saw her at South by Southwest, Jim, it was... Here, here was a sad moment because not only had the rock star faded, she had gone pro. What, what hole is now and what it used to be? It's, it's like it's not even the same thing. Professionalism for Courtney Love is that what it's come down to? And that's what you get when you when you talk about somebody like Linda Perry overseeing this record. I mean, to hear Linda Perry talk about what she expected this record to sound like, she wanted Courtney to do her mid-career, mid-life crisis record, kind of a folky, introspective record. I'm going, oh my God, really? That's what we want to hear from Courtney Love? I don't know. I mean, what's funny to me about this record is to hear her do her Bob Dylan impression. Yeah. There are several moments on this record where she's sort of channeling that Dylan nasal sneer, and it's kind of laughable. She's written songs about her mom, her about Kurt Cobain, about bottoming out on drugs. Then there, then there are the finger-pointing songs. There are all these women in her life that she's pissed off about and she's naming them and she's writing songs about them and it all adds up to just a big boring record a double trash it i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the jukebox, and this week it is Jim DeRogatis' turn. Thank you, Greg. I'm happy to play a song from a peer of Courtney Love in those halcyon alternative rock days of the 90s who is not embarrassing herself. I have not been the biggest fan of Bjork in recent 
years. I think she's gotten a little sedate with the electronica going too much toward the kind of robot pop music. I want to go back to when she was at the height of her powers, bringing in everything and the kitchen sink. I chose this to pay tribute to the fine people of Iceland who are having a heck of a time. First, there's a whole economic collapse of their entire country, Mm. right? And then this volcano blows up and people are really struggling there. It shuts down all of Europe. Nobody can fly anywhere. Although, you know, you can't get stuck in Barcelona. There's worse things, right? Poor Iceland, though, has been having a heck of a time. And I've always felt like a kindred spirit. The first time I ever went to Europe, I was road managing a band from New Jersey and we were going on tour to Europe and it was one of those cheap flights. For a while there, you could get these bargains. Everything got rooted through Reykjavik. (laughs) The downside was everything got rooted through Reykjavik. You know, you step out of the plane. It's a spring day in New Jersey when you get on. You're in shorts and a t-shirt. And then you get off and it's like the Arctic Circle. And there's nothing there. There's nothing flat whiteness. And you got five hours to like look at the flat whiteness outside the airport. I've always felt fond of Iceland since then. And when Bjork came over and in particular toured behind the uh, 95 album Post, what a mind blower. Her worldview has kind of narrowed in recent years. But on that record, she was doing huge alternative rock anthems, Army of Me. She was doing straightforward kind of cutting-edge techno dance music, modern things. And then she had, completely from left field, this World War II big band era hit originally recorded by the actress Betty Hutton, Blow a Fuse, It's Oh So Quiet. To me, that is the Bjork song of all time. To throw a little bit of Broadway, some cabaret, some electronic music, and some rock all together in one crazy, wild theatrical song. My favorite moment ever from Bjork. Here it is on Sound Opinions. so
fortune I got hit There's no mistake This is it Till it's over And then It's nice and quiet That is Blow a Fuse It's Oh So Quiet By Bjork on Sound Opinions Hang in there Iceland to get recaps of any of the reviews we did earlier, visit soundopinions.org. We were both in pretty good mood. Three double buy-its. We were. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have a live performance and an interview with a very interesting new hip-hop artist born in Somalia, Kanan. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team, who I will describe in the words of High on Fire. Jason Saldana is the fire. Robin Lynn is the blood. And Tori Southside Malati, our executive producer. I don't mean to, but he's the plague. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi guys, it's Jason from Los Angeles. I love the way that you guys use musical cues following segments or the, uh, the phone calls of listeners to oftentimes make a little pun or sort of tie in a, you know, a lyric in the music with the topic of discussion. However, I think you missed a golden opportunity. I was just listening to the tail end of the Clash album breakdown, and the guy calling to complain about how you guys mispronounce uh, the word Chicago I was just waiting for you guys to follow up his phone call with a clip from the soul coughing song, Is Chicago Is Not Chicago. You totally missed it on that one. I'm really disappointed in you guys. Uh, so you should play some more soul coughing to appease me. Anyway, thanks. Great show. Talk to you soon. Bye. It's Chicago. It's not Chicago. It's Chicago. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Dixon calling from Chicago. I just finished listening to your classic album dissection of London Calling, and I loved it. What I did not love, however, was the beginning of the show, which you dedicated to the music of Justin Bieber. I understand young Mr. Bieber is popular, and he probably deserves a mention, but did you guys have to drag it out? Guys, that was painful. I can only assume that, in the spirit of punk, you were trying to antagonize your audience and rile them up before you got into your discussion of the clash. Well, as far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished. I love the show, and I plan to keep listening, but please never, ever do something like that again. Yeah, hi, this is D.B. calling from Western New York, and I just want to say you guys did an excellent job dissecting the London Calling album by The Clash. The Clash was such an influential group, 
I was a young punk living in Los Angeles, and we started a band based on The Clash. We called it The Converters because we were converted to the sound of The Clash, and we wanted to be just like them. We all talked about it since listening to it in retrospect, and we all agree that our favorite song, no doubt, is Brand New Cadillac. Thanks, guys. Excellent job. Keep up the good work. Hey guys, Jason in Los Angeles here. Huge fan of the show. Just got through listening to your track-by-track breakdown of The Clash's London Calling, and I gotta say thank you. I am a huge music fan, and somehow The Clash has always eluded me. I've enjoyed tracks when they've come on at parties and in clubs, but I've never really given them a thorough analysis and a thorough uh, chance of an album all the way through. You guys have finally turned me on to The Clash. And I've got a suggestion for your next full album breakdown. I would strongly suggest taking that treatment and giving it to Wilco's Summer Teeth. I think it's their best album. I think it's their most underrated album. You've got all the perfect mixture for a story behind it. It's a band coming off a successful record being there. It's the intra-band tensions as Tweedy and uh, Jay Bennett get closer and sort of isolate the rest of the band. You've got the tensions between Tweedy and Bennett beginning. And you've got an incredibly diverse album that benefits from some deep analysis. So I hope you guys take my advice. I'm looking forward to hearing the next episode, whatever it may be. And keep up the good work. Peace. And every evening when he gets home To make his supper and eat it alone His back shirt cries while his shoes get cold It's just a dream he keeps having And it doesn't seem to mean anything No more messages And it doesn't seem to To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.